Sonny, yesterday my life was filled with rain. Sonny, you smiled at me and really eased the pain. Now the dark days are gone, the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere and sunny one so true. I love you, sunny. Thank you for the sunshine bouquet, sunny. Thank you for the love you brought my way. You gave to me your all and all. And now I feel ten feet tall and sunny one so true. I love you and sunny. Thank you for the truth you let me see and sunny. Thank you, thank you for the facts from A to Z. My life was torn like windblown sand. Then a rock was born when we held hands. And sunny one, so true. I love you, sunny. Thank you for that smile upon your face. I said, sunny. Thank you for that gleam that flows with grace. You're my spark of nature's fire. You're my sweet, complete desire. Sunny one, so true. I love you, sunny. Yesterday my life was filled with rain. I said, sunny, you smiled at me and really eased the pain. Now the dark days are gone, the bright days are here. Sunny one shines so sincere, and sunny one so true. I love you, oh, and sunny. Thank you for the truth you let me see. I said, sunny. Thank you for the facts from A to Z. You know my life was torn like a windblown sand, and a rock was born when we held hands and. Sunny one, so true. I do, I do, I do. I love you. I love Sunny. Yesterday my life was filled with rain. I said, Sunny, you smiled at me and really eased the pain. Now the dark days are gone, the bright days are here. You know my Sunny one shines so sincere and Sunny one, so true. Oh, Sunny one, so true. And welcome to the weekly review. Oh goodness. Uh, oh boy. Uh, we're back here. It's Friday, October thirtieth, two thousand fifteen, according to the calendar. We're all told to follow and believe. 
And yeah, I was out of town for a little bit and now back, uh, getting back into the swing of things, as it were. Opened up the show with a song called Sunny, and that was by Bobby Hebb and Ron Carter. And um, got some really sad news uh, this past weekend that a friend of mine uh, took his own life, and uh, his name was Sonny. So that's where the inspiration for the to playing that song uh, came from. So I was going to talk a little bit about him and just how sad and angry and hurt and just to lose another person who was so kind and so warm and so giving. Uh, I met Sonny maybe two years ago, maybe a little bit less, uh, actually at a trans support group. And uh, we, we hung out a little bit and I'd pet sit for Sonny when, when he was out of town. And uh, he had decided to move to Las Vegas to help take care of his his family. And that ended up not uh, panning out so well. And uh, so I found out, I was unsure exactly how much to really disclose here on the show. I was thinking about talking about it more, and now I'm thinking about maybe maybe making it more of a broad generalization, I suppose, with dealing with loss. And been thinking about that a lot lately. Um, lost a few people this year so far, and that's, you know, it's inevitable that we lose people. Um, the The idea, of course, though, that a lot of these deaths are preventable, and when someone's been bullied, how how sad that is, and how enraging that is to know what someone has been going through and what someone has been fighting against. And it's it's an everyday thing that a lot of people encounter, and feeling a little bit not necessarily hopeless but maybe a little bit helpless and this there's this idea like oh i could have done more and we all could have done more and what kind of world are we living in when people treat each other so poorly and are so mean and so cruel to one another like really just digging at one another and calling people names and not treating one another uh, with respect and how sad and just frustrating that is and I'll, as I go into the news stories I mean that's a that's a pattern when I mean I talk about news stories here we talk about police brutality we talk about mass incarceration we talk about war we talk about transphobia and all of these things are linked to people not treating each other with respect or even seeing one another as people. Because if we did see one another as people, we wouldn't lock each other up in cages. We wouldn't bomb other countries. Uh, we wouldn't hate someone just based on their expression of their gender identity. These are things that are all very preventable. And a lot of us are okay with doing it. I mean, and there's a lot of great people out there. Yeah, there's a lot of people causing a lot of harm. And there's also, I would say, the majority of people are live and let live types. However, it's the folks who are enacting violence that are the ones causing all this pain. And I guess there's that idea that hurt people hurt people. Um, and there has to be a way to, to stop that, certainly. There has to be. So I was out of town, I was in New York for about a week, and I saw some friends and family out there, and I did get to, um, I was at a memorial there um, while I was there as well, and it was so moving and so poignant, and I pretty much cried the entire way through, 
It was a little over an hour. I cried uh, throughout the week and then even still thinking about it, um, uh, just crying. And it felt uh, healthy to have that release. And it felt so warm to be able to be in a room with a lot of people, most of whom I didn't know, um, who, and we're all remembering the, the same person and the, the life that she brought and the light that she brought and all the work that she did. And to hear folks speak of their time with her was so incredible. Um, yeah, it was uh, Ann Mira, who is an actor and comedian and also an activist, uh, hearing about work she did to prevent parks from being made into parking lots. Uh, that's activism right there. And hearing about all the people that she worked with and inspired uh, was, it was, so, it was so poignant and uh, healing. Uh, healing, very healing, and I had the privilege of meeting her a few times and being uh, related to her uh, through, I guess through marriage, certainly, and uh, how honored I am to have known her and to have been able to be in a room where, where she was honored and just, it was filled with love. It was just filled with love. So... Um, yeah, so just thinking about that a lot, and, uh, it's something that we all go through, is, is that grief, and how, how healthy it is to be able to express it, and to be able to talk about it, and to celebrate those who, you know, came before us, and the work that they've done to make the world a better place, and to make us feel less alone. I think that's really, really crucial. So I've been crying a lot, which feels, it overall feels very healthy, and we definitely live in a culture which has, especially I think for men, told folks not to show emotion, um, and this idea that somehow showing emotion is equated with weakness, which is ridiculous. I think it's the opposite. I think being allowing oneself to be vulnerable uh, is extremely a strong thing to do. And if imagine if everyone was able to say, oh, I feel hurt, or I feel sad, or scared, or angry. Imagine if everyone felt the uh, safety and felt that they could do that um, because when one does that, then other folks can respond and can help out. And that's what happened when I, I returned home and the, the trip um, in addition to the memorial was also heavy seeing, seeing friends. And after living in a place for nine years, I, I missed New York City tremendously. And I saw so many familiar faces and friends whom I love so much. And I always feel like there's more time that I need to be spending there. And the, the first few days, I mean, I always try to pack as much in as I can and see as many people as possible. And no matter how much time it is, no matter how hard I try, I don't get to see everyone I would like to see. And even with those I do get to see, it, it's always so hard to say goodbye and, and hard to leave, even though I know I will see them again in one way or another. And so it was just, it was just very heavy. Um, and then coming back uh, was very emotional, and uh, I, I usually fly while while, while stoned. I have an edible before I go through security, and then I sit and wait to board. And I I feel like I know with a lot of folks um, having cannabis can increase one's like psychic abilities or um, just being really sensitive to energy. I know some folks might not necessarily believe in that or subscribe to it. Uh, a lot of folks do though. And being really, very aware of what people are maybe feeling or thinking, um, just having a, a very broad 
sensory feel to that. And in the airports, people are so stressed out. It makes sense. People are afraid for a variety of reasons. Uh, with the you know with security, with idea like the illusion of security in a way where uh, folks are kind of stripped of you know you got to take off your shoes, you have to go through your bags, and I refuse to go through the uh, those computer not computer but like you know those screening robot screening things. I used to go through them and give the middle finger, and then I was like no I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want uh, ew I just no gross. So I always you can opt out. That's something that some folks uh, don't realize. You can opt out of doing those going through those screening machines and you can get like a, a pat down by an agent imagine that you know human contact and i recognize that not everyone has had okay experiences with with tsa agents um there's a lot of unwanted uh, touching certainly um there isn't the option though to not go through the machines so i just remember growing up uh it, you know going on going to the airport and being able to meet people coming out of the gate you know coming off the plane you would actually meet them there and now it's it, people are separated from one another and even just in terms of getting on the plane and i i get that yes we do need safety however at what cost that's my question at what cost and is there a way to even go back a little bit like are we going to continue to be more and more scrutinized and have being able to carry fewer and fewer things that don't hurt anyone uh that's that's a question so anyway i was i was really just emotional and also it was like an early flight and I didn't sleep much the night before and I was stoned and feeling very sensitive and writing a lot and feeling a lot and having a lot of kind of psychic I don't know premonitions or connections and that's one thing I am grateful for is that I do believe there's more to it than than just what we see around us and what we experience around us and we might not recognize it and not everyone believes in that and I respect that for me and for a lot of folks I know we we do feel that we can do maybe feel the energy of those around us who have left and I'm very sensitive to that and in a way it can be reassuring it doesn't replace anyone though the idea that someone's energy who was here and is no longer here in body might still be with us and can still be around us to guide us and protect us is is reassuring so I was feeling a lot of that and I came back and crying, as I said, and I'm not ashamed. I grew up crying. I'm, I'm a sensitive, very, very sensitive person, and I grew up crying a lot. And a lot of our culture, even even though I was socialized as female, even as a young, being told I was a girl, you know, even then there was some shame uh, in a variety of places about expressing emotion and this idea of where is that acceptable. And I think as a culture and as a society, we really need to question that and look into that the idea that showing grief or showing sadness is somehow unacceptable or unprofessional. Um, but we're human beings. I mean, I think I'm part alien, but we're human beings overall. We're told we're human beings, right? And uh, how, where, wh where does one draw the line as to allowing one to express oneself? And I think about from what I've heard about people in the military and vets and how there is... Uh, this idea that seeking help, uh, mental like mental health, is discouraged, and it's like it's people, especially who've been in you know really traumatic situations and violent situations, one would think it would help to be able to talk about it and be able to find someone safe where one can express what they've been through and just to talk through their feelings at the very least, and this idea, this idea that one cannot 
talk about what one has been through or talk about grief or sadness or anger, I think makes the problem so much worse. And then people end up holding it inside and then people explode or they end up not being able to live with it. So, so I came back and was crying and feeling very sad and I was able to reach out to people and I was very grateful because people really did show up. I called people and I also posted something online and I get Facebook is super evil. Like I'm, I'm on there. I, I recognize that, that they're, you know, looking at, I mean, that's the thing. It's like surveillance certainly. And so I feel like if they're going to be surveilling, surveying us, I might as well be honest and open about my emotions. Cause perhaps maybe someone reading that will be like, Oh, wait a second. A lot of people feel this way. Maybe I should, uh, uh, start questioning what I've been taught. Cause it's, it's like the very, it's like kind of like the, the, the Spartacus, uh, idea, you know, it's like if we're all, if we're all feeling it or most of us or many of us are feeling it, then people will become less ostracized or less alienated if it's such a common feeling. And of course, grief is common. I guess sociopaths don't feel it. I don't know enough about sociopaths, but perhaps someone can educate me on that. So I asked for help and people really showed up. People messaged me, people texted and I felt I feel very grateful to have a support network and people from just different areas of my life who really showed up. So I'm very grateful for that. And I would encourage other folks to do the same, um, regardless of what you're going through, to ask for help, to reach out um, in whatever medium. And people will show up. Um, so, <sighs> so yeah, I just wanted to talk about that. So anyway, I get back and I'm just thinking about the memorial, which was so it was so beautiful and so poignant and just there was, uh, people were speaking and then there was like music just like, oh, and it was just, oh, I mean, I can't even, I can't even do it justice. It's, 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 it, it felt like art in a way where it's an experience where one feels connected to what's going on and so moved in a way that words do not do it justice. It just, just feeling it was just so incredible and so healing. So that's been on my mind a lot. So I come back and then the day after, I came back, I received a call from my friend's sister and she had found me in his phone and she she and I had never spoken before and she didn't know how close we were. And I'm so grateful that she, she called me and uh, left a message and I kind of knew, I kind of knew as soon as I heard the message that something, that what had happened. And I was able to call back and, and talk to her for a little bit. And then it kind of, then there was another, another cycle of grief and it's, and again, it's, yeah, it's, it's, we should be, I don't want to say used to it necessarily, because it's not a surprise. However, one would uh, assume it's, it's maybe it feels a little bit different when it's something that feels preventable in a way. And perhaps it's like always preventable in one way or another. Um, but when someone is in so much pain, it's, there's that additional, that sadness and that idea that what one could have done more and also just looking at the society. And that's part of the reason I do the show is to provide a voice that hopefully can offer some support and some hope. And I recognize that a lot of the stories I read are super depressing. That was the original tagline of the show was the news is depressing. And sometimes we play music and it's a way of just dealing with things. And there's the truth behind it though. Uh, the truth of like, this is what's going on in the world. And you know, we have to, oh my gosh, there's a great quote, uh, it's a James Baldwin quote, I believe, um, and it's, oh, I should look it up so I can do the accurate quote, but the, the idea is that nothing can be uh, faced, nothing can be changed until it's faced, 
I'll, I'll look up the the actual quote and give you all the the real the real deal and I, I feel that too uh, and that's why I do the show is that there's a lot of shit going on there's a lot of violence and unless we actually acknowledge that it's going on then we're and work to change it then we're not really doing anything to to stop it and in a way that's part of the problem even though if we're not even though we're not maybe not the cause of it necessarily going along with it or pretending it doesn't exist doesn't help at all and that's all we can do oh so that was my opening rant i'm gonna get into some news here and then i'll probably go back and rant a little bit more i don't know if it's really a rant it's more just how i'm feeling in a public in a public way of just talking about feelings that hopefully folks can identify with and uh, yeah just another encouragement for people to ask for help and also to offer help and to really show up for people because it's it's not easy to ask for help and i know everyone's going through it and there's varying degrees of oppression and pressure that people are under and uh, what is life if not to be able to help one another so the first story is uh it's going to be it's a short sweet story <laughs> i guess um, someone posted this recently, and I enjoyed the title, and that's kind of where it comes from. It's really just like the title in itself. I don't think we necessarily – I will read the, the article. However, the title alone just made me smile because I feel like I can kind of uh, agree with that in a lot of ways, and maybe other people can relate as well. So the title of the article is 109-Year-Old Woman Said Secret to Long Life is Avoiding Men. Uh, this comes from Huffington Post, and uh, this is written by Anne Branoff. And uh, yeah, I, I, I prefer to. I, I don't necessarily believe in the binary, of course. However, I do feel overall, um, and obviously, I've you know got some of my best friends are men, haha. But I, I do feel safer in general, and I just prefer to be around women. And that's something I have to say. It's it's true. It's true, and especially when in larger groups, especially in larger groups. All right, a 109-year-old woman in Scotland said in January that the secret to her longevity is this. Eat your porridge and avoid men. Centenarian Jesse Gallen, who never married, was born in a tiny two-room farm cottage where she slept, topped to tail, with her five sisters and a brother on a straw mattress, reported the Daily Mail. Gallen told the newspaper that her secret to a long life has been staying away from men. They're just more trouble than they're worth. She noted that she also made sure that I got plenty of exercise, eat a nice warm bowl of porridge every morning, and have never gotten married. Last year, when she turned 108, she credited her porridge, but not avoiding men, as the reason for her longevity. The oldest person in the world is currently Susanna Mushat Jones, who turned 116 over the summer. She claims that eating bacon is the secret to long life. I know some folks will have issues with that. Uh, last year, a national survey of centenarians in the United States found that the secrets to long life include plenty of time with friends and family and a commitment to fitness. Uh, update, Gallen died in a nursing home in March 2015. So, yep, just reading that because I thought that was... Uh, uh, okay, th and this will go into the next. Uh, no, 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 not much else, much else to, to say to that, certainly. Um, this will go into the next story. Um, oh, okay, this is from The Independent, and th we there's a war against women. Some folks would pretend that's not happening. 
Uh, but it is. It's happening around the world, and it's been happening around the world, and it needs to stop. And uh, folks can point fingers and say, oh, well, here, y- yeah, maybe there are, there are some freedoms here. However, when you think about reproductive uh, health and how unavailable it is to a lot of people in this country, uh, that, that needs to change. So I read this article, and that definitely uh, kind of triggered some feelings of how things are in, in some areas of this country here and the folks who are in positions of power who's, who feel like it's their mission to prevent women from having adequate reproductive health care. It's from The Independent, and the title is ISIS Shuts Down Women's Clinics in Raqqa to Prevent Male Gynecologists Treating Female Patients. And this is written by Adam with with no. Uh, activist networks report doctors are being threatened with death and most have fled. And this, of course, ties into um, a lot of the refugees uh, who have left Syria. ISIS is believed to have ordered the closure of all women's clinics supervised by male doctors in its Syrian heartlands in its latest assault on the rights of women. The culture of rape, forced marriages for child brides, the persecution of doctors, and the exclusive use of medicines for militants have resulted in a crisis for women's health under ISIS's brutal regime. According to activists, ISIS has drastically restricted the work of male gynecologists in accordance with its leader's belief that men and women should be kept apart at all costs. And I say, fuck you. Now, granted that last article was, yeah, stay away from men. I think this is a, a little bit different, though. Uh, Raqqa is being, slaughter, is being slaughtered silently. The rights group, which, uh, which this year won the CPJ International Press Freedom Award, has reported threats and harassment towards doctors in the city on Wednesday night. A lot of doctors have already left, especially gynecologists who were barred from practicing their work and threatened with death, said Abu Mohammed, the group's founder. Sources told another activist network, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, that all women's clinics in Raqqa state, overseen by men, have been shut down. Gynecologists working in the province's larger hospitals had their involvement in operations confined. The observatory, a London-based network of activists, said it had previously reported on the closure of women's clinics in smaller provinces held by ISIS. People expressed their resentment over these steps taken by ISIS regarding health and medical staff in the city, which already suffers from the lack of female medical staff engaged in these tasks, it said in a statement. Earlier this year, doctors in ISIS's Libyan territories reported a dramatic increase in cases of miscarriages and STIs among young women as girls are forced into unions with fighters. One gynecologist told the Times in May that girls taken into clinics were often so young they had no real sense of what was happening to them. We see girls who are bleeding heavily from their genital area. Some of them don't know what sex is. They come in the clinic playing with their dolls. The demand on women's clinics continues to grow in ISIS-held Syria and Iraq as women are tasked primarily with producing the next generation of fighters. A manifesto for the role of women in the Islamic State, unearthed in February by the Kaliam counter-extremism think tank, revealed a sedentary lifestyle as mothers and homemakers. It is considered legitimate, the document says, for a girl to be married at the age of nine. So, uh, I apologize for not 
uh, reading a, a trigger warning before that story. I feel like I should always do a trigger warning before the entire show because that's what's 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 bound to happen. And going back to that previous story, uh, reasons to stay away from men. Maybe that's one reason to stay away from men is men like that. Um. So, oh, Jesus. All right. So, um, we're gonna take a bit of a musical break, and then I'll be back with some more news. And um, play a song that I uh, heard at the memorial, which was beautiful and I haven't heard it in a while. So this is Peter, Paul, and Mary with Where Have All the Flowers Gone?
the flowers go. beautiful song i i wish there were more songs like that there are plenty of songs i wish there were more new songs like that i guess that we heard so the next story uh a, a lot of the stories there's themes common themes people being mistreated based on the bodies they've been born into that's a that's a theme of life isn't it we're born into these bodies and then people make assumptions and we're treated a certain way just based on how the bodies that we're in and how we travel the world so this one comes from the body is not an apology and sonia renee taylor who's a creator of this this site and this movement, um, I encourage everyone to check out the site. It's called The Body Is Not An Apology. Uh, Sonia called into the show maybe about a year and a half ago, and we're so, so great to have Sonia on to talk about this. So this is an article, uh, 10 Answers to Common Questions People Ask When Being Called Out for Using Ableist Language. And that's something that's not necessarily discussed too much, so I thought it was really important to share it on the show. And this article is written by Rachel Cohen Rottenberg. Okay, so the uh, uh, da, 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 da. the okay. So the first part of the article goes in this is in italics. The economy has been crippled by debt. You'd have to be insane to want to invade Syria. They're just blind to the suffering of other people. Only a moron would believe that. Disability metaphors around abound. Disability metaphors abound in our culture and they exist almost entirely as pejoratives. You see something wrong? Compare it to a disabled body or mind. Paralyzed, lame, crippled, schizophrenic, diseased, sick. Want to launch an insult? The words are seemingly endless. Deaf, dumb, blind, idiot, moron, imbecile, crazy, insane, retard, lunatic, psycho, spaz. I see these terms everywhere in comment threads, on major news stories, on social justice sites, in everyday speech. These words seem so natural to people that they go uncritiqued a great deal of the time. I tend to remark on this kind of speech whenever I s wherever I see it. In some very rare places, my critique is welcome. In most places, it is not. When a critique of language that makes reference to disability is not welcome, it is nearly inevitable that as a disabled person, I am not welcome either. I might be welcome as an activist, but not as a disabled activist. I might be welcome as an ally, but not as a disabled ally. I might be welcome as a parent, but not as a disabled parent. That's a lot like being welcomed as an activist and as an ally and as a parent, but not as a woman or as a Jew. Many people have questions about why ableist speech matters, so I'll be addressing those questions here. Please feel free to raise others. Number one, why are you harping so much on words anyway? Don't we have more important things to worry about? I'm always very curious about those who believe that words are only words, as though they do not have tremendous power. 
Those of us who use words understand the world through them. We use words to construct frameworks with which we understand experience. Every time we speak or write, we are telling a story. Every time we listen or read, we are hearing one. No one lives without entering into these stories about their fellow human beings, as Arthur Frank writes. Stories work with people for, for people, and always stories work on people, affecting what people are able to see as real as possible and as worth doing or best avoided. What is it about stories? What are their particularities that enables them to work as they do? More than mere curiosity is at stake in this question, because human life depends on the stories we tell. The sense of self that those stories impart, the relationships constructed around shared stories, and the sense of purpose that stories both propose and foreclose. The stories that disability metaphors tell are deeply problematic, deeply destructive, and deeply resonant of the kinds of violence and oppression that disabled people have faced over the course of many centuries. They perpetuate negative and disempowering views of disabled people, and these views wind their ways into all of the things that most people feel are more important. It's culture's language. It's uh, if a culture's language is full of pejorative metaphors about a group of people, that culture is not going to see those people as fully entitled to the same housing, employment, medical care, education, access, and inclusion as people in a more favored group. Number two. What if a word no longer has the same meaning it once did? What's wrong with using it in that case? Ah, uh, yes, the etymology argument. When people argue word meanings, it generally happens in a particular and largely unstated context. With regard to ableist metaphors, people argue that certain meanings are obsolete, but such assertions fail to note the ways in which these obsolete words resonate for people in marginalized groups. For example, I see this argument a great deal around the wor word moron, which used to be a clinical term for people with an intellectual disability. I have a great aunt who had this label and was warehoused in, a state, ho in state hospitals for much of her brief 25 years of life. So when I see this word, it resonates through history. I remember all of the people with this designation who lived and died in state schools and state mental hospitals under conditions of extreme abuse, extreme degradation, extreme poverty, extreme neglect, and extreme suffering from disease and malnutrition. My grandaunt lay dying of tuberculosis for 10 months under those conditions in a state mental hospital. The term moron was used to oppress human beings like her, many of whom are still in the living memory of those of us who have come after. Moron, and related terms, like imbecile and idiot, may no longer be used clinically, but their clinical use is not the issue. They have terms of oppression, and every time someone uses one without respect for the history of disabled people, they disrespect the memory of the people who had to carry those terms to their graves. 3. What's wrong with using bodies as metaphors anyway? Think about it this way. Consider that you're a woman walking down the street and someone makes an unwanted commentary on your body. Suppose that the person looks at you in your favorite dress with your hair all done up and tells you that you are, quote-unquote, as fat as a pig. Is your body public property to be commented upon at will? Are others allowed to make use of it in their language, your, hair, your hearing, without your permission? Or is that a form of objectification and disrespect? 
In the same way that a stranger should not appropriate your body for his commentary, you should not appropriate my disabled body, which is, after all, mine and not yours, for your political writing or social commentary. A disabled body should not appear in articles about how lame that sexist movie is or how insane racism is. A disabled body should be no more available for commentary than a non-disabled one. The core, pro the, the core problem with using a body as a metaphor is that people actually live in bodies. We are not just paralyzed legs or deaf ears or blind eyes. When we become reduced to our disabilities, others very quickly forget that there are people involved here. We are no longer seen as whole, living, breathing human beings. Our bodies have simply been put into the service of your cause without our permission. Four, aren't some bodies better than others? What's wrong with language that expresses that? I always find it extraordinary that people who have been oppressed on the basis of their physical differences, how their bodies look and work, can still hold to the idea that some bodies are better than others. Perhaps this is, there is something in the human mind that absolutely must project wrongness onto some kind of other, so that everyone else can feel whole and free. In the culture I live in, disabled bodies often fit this bill, often fit the bill. A great deal of this projection betrays a tremendous ignorance about disability. I've seen people defend using mental disabilities as a metaphor by, by, post, by positing that all mentally disabled people are divorced from reality, when in fact very few mental disabilities involve delusions. I've seen people use schizophrenic to describe the state of being divided into separate people, when schizophrenia has nothing to do with multiplicity at all. I have seen people refer to blindness as a total inability to see when many blind people have some sight. I have seen people refer to deafness as being locked into an isolation chamber when in fact deaf people speak with their hands and listen with their eyes if they are sighted or with their hands if they are not. Underlying this ignorance, of course, is an outsider's view of disability as, the bad, as a bad thing. Our culture is rife with this idea and most people take it absolutely for granted. Even people who refuse to essentialize anything else about human life will essentialize disability in this way. Such people play right into the social narrative that disability is pitiful, scary, and tragic. But those of us who inhabit disabled bodies have learned something essentially essential. Disability is what bodies do. They all change. They are all vulnerable. They all become disabled at some point. That is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's just an essential fact of human life. I neither love nor hate my disabilities. They are what they are. They are neither tragic nor wonderful, metaphor nor object lesson. Five, I would never use the N-word because people of color are part of an oppressed group. Disabled people aren't really oppressed, are they? Yes, disabled people are members of an oppressed group, and disability rights are a civil rights issue. Disabled people are assaulted at higher rates, live in poverty at higher rates, and are unemployed at higher rates than non-disabled people. We face widespread exclusion, discrimination, and human rights violations. For an example of what some of the issues are, please take some time over at the Disability Social History Project. Six, if my disabled friend says it's okay to use these words, doesn't that make it all right to use them? Please don't make any one of us the authority on language. It should go without saying, but think for yourself about the impact of the language you're using. If you stop using a word because someone told you to, you're doing it wrong. It's much better if you understand why. Seven, I don't know why we all have to be so careful about giving offense. 
Shouldn't people just grow thicker skins? I hear that a lot. For me, it is not a question of personal offense, but of political and social impact. If you routinely use disability slurs, you are adding to a narrative that says that disabled people are wrong, broken, dangerous, pitiful, and tragic. That does not serve us. Eight, aren't you just a member of the PC police trying to take away my First Amendment rights? No. The First Amendment protects you from government interference in free speech. It does not protect you from criticism about the words you use. Nine, aren't you playing oppression Olympics here? No, I've never said that one form of oppression is worth worse than another, and I never will. In fact, I'm asking that people <coughs> I'm asking that people who are marginalized on the basis of the appearance or functioning of their bodies, on the basis of gender identity, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, class, size, age, and disability, get together and talk about ways in which these oppressions weave through one another and support one another. If you do not want disability used against your group, start thinking about what you're doing to reinforce ableism in your own speech. If you do not want people of color to be called feeble-minded, or women to be called weak, or LGBT people to be called freaks, or fat people to be called diseased, or working class people to be called stupid, all of which are disability slurs, then the solution isn't to try to distance yourself from us and say, no, we are not disabled like you. The solution is to make common cause with us and say, there is nothing wrong with being disabled and we are proud to stand with you. And number 10, why can't we use disability slurs when the target is actually a non-disabled person? To my knowledge, the President of the United States is not mentally disabled, yet his policies have been called crazy and insane. Most Hollywood films are made by people without mobility issues, and yet people call the, their films lame. Someone who has no consciousness of racism or homophobia will be called blind or deaf to the issues, and yet, such lack of consciousness runs rampant among non-disabled people. <coughs> so, why associate something with a disability when, when it's what non-disabled people do every single day of the week? As far as I can see, lousy things... Uh, lousy foreign policy, lousy Hollywood films, and lousy comments about race and sexual orientation are by far the province of so-called normal people. So come on, normal people. Don't uh, start owning up to what's yours, and please remember that we disabled folks are people, not metaphors, in the service of your cause. Whew. So with that, I'm going to go into another song, and then we'll be back with some more stories. Oh, heavy show today. I guess it's always a heavy show. Uh, the next couple songs I'm going to be playing are from Fun Home. It's a great musical, great book by Alison Bechdel. I recommend both for folks to check out if you're able. And then we'll be back with some more, uh, some more stories. All right. happened last night are you really here joan 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 hi joan don't wake up joan oh my god last night oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god last night 
I got so excited, I was too enthusiastic. Thank you for not laughing while well, you laughed a little bit. At one point when I was touching you and said I might lose consciousness, which you said was adorable, and I just have to trust that you don't think I'm an idiot or some kind of an animal. I never lost control due to overwhelming lust, but I must say that I'm changing my major to Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. With a minor in kissing Joan. Foreign study to Joan's inner thighs. A seminar on Joan's ass in her Levi's. And Joan's crazy brown eyes. Joan, I feel like Hercules. Oh, God, that sounds ridiculous. Just keep on sleeping through this, and I'll work on calming down. So by the time you've woken up, I'll be cool, I'll be collected, and I'll have found some dignity. But who needs dignity? Because this is so much better. I'm radiating happiness. Will you stay here with me for the rest of the semester? We won't need any food. We'll live on sex alone. Sex with Joan. Joan. It's a cutting-edge field and my mind is blown. I will gladly stay up every night to hone my compulsory skills with Joan. I will study my way down her spine, familiarize myself with her well-made outline while she researches mine. I don't know who I am. I've become someone new Nothing I just did Is anything I would do Overnight everything changed I am not prepared I'm dizzy, I'm nauseous, I'm shaky I'm scared Am I falling into nothingness Or flying into something so sublime I don't know, but I'm changing my major to Joan. I thought all my life I'd be all alone, but that was before I was lying prone in this dorm room bed with a Joan. Look, she's drooled on the Sweaty and tangled up in my bedsheet, and my heart feels complete. Let's never leave this room. How about we stay here till finals? I'll go to school forever. I'll take out a dementedly huge high interest loan. Cause I'm changing. My major to John. Ah, playing some softer music today. That was from Fun Home. Uh, it's called Changing My Major. We'll be hearing one more song from that musical on the show. Next up, ugh. You know, I, I know it's been up, up a couple of weeks. I wanted to 
give a thank you to, to Pam Benjamin for doing the show while I was away. And uh, I forgot how, how serious the show is. Uh, I don't know why. I've been doing it for almost, going on two years now, almost. And, uh, oof, heavy stuff. But I feel there's a need for it, so that's why I do it. So i got some more stories coming up. Buckle in. Uh, trigger warning for everything that we're talking about here. It's it's heavy stuff, and it's it's also what's happening in the world. So need to need to address it. So if you're able to listen, please listen. Up next, uh, Gloria Steinem on getting an illegal abortion at 22. I just knew that if I went home and married, it would be to a life that wasn't mine. And this is written by Alana uh, Vaglianos. Vaglianos. All right. Gloria Steinem recently opened up about an illegal abortion she had as a young woman and what inspired her to finally speak up. In an NPR interview on October 26th, Steinem uh, spoke with Fresh Air host Terry Gross for an interview covering her new book, My Life on the Road, and Steinem's lifelong fight for gender equality. One of the most important issues facing women today, Steinem said, is reproductive rights. Steinem told Gross that she got pregnant when she was 22 and had to seek out an illegal abortion in 1957. I had been doing all the foolish things that we did then, uh, that we did then, that we then did to terminate pregnancy, like riding horseback, throwing ourselves downstairs, Steinem told Gross. I was desperate. I really was desperate, she continued. I just knew that if I went home and married, which I would have had to do, it would be the, I would be, it would be the wrong person. It would be in a life that wasn't mine, that wasn't mine at all. The now 81-year-old, uh, even dedicated her upcoming book to the doctor who performed her legal abortion, Dr. John Sharp. Knowing that she had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, you must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you, who knew the law was unjust, would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could do with my life. This book is for you. Steinem told Gross she didn't speak publicly about her abortion until she was working for New York Magazine in her mid-30s when she attended an abortion speak-out. Suddenly, I heard other women standing up and talking about what it was like to have to go out and seek an illegal abortion, she said. So I sat there as a reporter for New York Magazine, listening to women tell their stories that were tragic and ludicrous and every human emotion all wrapped up into one. And suddenly, I thought, wait a minute, I had an abortion. And actually, one in three American women had needed an abortion at some time in her life. So why is this illegal, and why is, this, why is it still dangerous? And why is it dangerous? And it's the kind of revelation that comes from people just telling the truth and discovering you're not alone. And there's a quote from her. The definition of patriarchy is to be able to control reproduction, and that means you have to control women's bodies. She talked about how important it is for every person, no matter their gender, to have control over their own bodies. It seems to me that every child has the right to be born, loved, and wanted, and every person has the right to control, male and female, to control their own bodies from the skin in. Later, Steinem added that the very definition of patriarchy is to control women's bodies. The definition of patriarchy is to be able to control reproduction, and that means you have to control women's bodies. We're down to take on the patriarchy any day with you, Gloria. Just give us a call. 
So I thought that was very important to read and also kind of corresponds with the previous story we were reading about uh, ISIS and how there's also folks here in the States who don't feel that women have the right to control their own bodies and that's terrible and those folks need to be stopped. Okay, coming up next. Oh, man, this is a, it's a heavy show. It's always a heavy show. I always say that. I don't know why I'm surprised. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, I mean, I do, I did miss the show, and it's, it's a lot going on. So the next couple of stories are going to be heavy, followed by some music, and then some more heavy stories. But we, we're, in, we're, in for the, we're in for the long haul. We got this going on. We got this happening, and it'll be all right. So next, I'm going to read a brief, uh, just a brief passage. Um, there's a lot of trans folks who are in prison. Uh, a couple things I'm extremely passionate about are rights for transgender folks, such as myself, and also uh, the end of mass incarceration and how many people are incarcerated uh, who do not need to be incarcerated at all and how many folks who are incarcerated who are there just for defending themselves. And that happens with a lot of trans folks. Uh, Cece McDonald was one person who defended herself against attackers and then she ended up in jail. Thankfully she is out. And here's another uh, story. Um, a person named Kai Peterson, a black trans man from Georgia who has been in prison for three years for the involuntary manslaughter of his attacker, which he says was in self-defense. And this article is from The Advocate. It's written by uh, Senevi Brydom and Mitch Kellaway. And this, is, this, came out in, this article came out in April 2015. I'm going to read the first part of it and then go into another article. Kai Peterson brushed off the stranger hitting on him outside a convenience store in Americus, Georgia, without a second thought. It's not like he hadn't rebuffed a stranger's advances before. But as he walked home past an unoccupied trailer on October 28, 2011, something hard struck the back of his head. He blacked out. When he came to, the stranger from the sidewalk was on top of him, naked and spitting homophobic slurs at the 20-year-old black trans man as he forced himself inside Peterson. I freaked out, Peterson tells the advocate. I screamed. He kept screaming in pain and fear, perhaps also in surprise. It was happening again. He was being raped on his walk home, and no one would help him, especially not the police. Last time he was attacked in his, in his neighborhood, in his own neighborhood, the cops could barely be bothered to file the report and thinking they'd investigate, maybe even, maybe even arrest the guy, a fantasy. This was reality, this moment, live or, live or die. Peterson hollered again. Adrenaline kicked in, an animal instinct, fight or flight. He struck out at the man who struck back. They struggled, and in the split seconds, Peterson's thoughts fought for attention in his pounding head. How long was I unconscious? How did I get to the how do I get how do I get to the door <sighs> what hit me in the back of the skull is he going to kill me suddenly the pitch black of the trailer revealed a slice of murky light Peterson heard two familiar voices shouting his younger brothers they must have trailed home after uh, they must have trailed home from the store a few minutes after him following the trio's usual path back through the trailer park he heard the two boys call his name. He heard the sound of their sneakers scuff on the floor as they pulled at his attacker. He took a gulp of air as the stranger's weight was thrown off of him. Heard their voices raised in an argument. He knew he couldn't lay still there, even as his injuries revealed themselves to him in a wave of aches. He stood up, now on one side of the trailer, with his two brothers flanking him. He saw the shadowed figure of the naked stranger charging forward, he didn't have time to think as his fingers grasped, grasped the smooth metal of the gun he'd started carrying in his backpack as a nighttime precaution ever since his first rape. 
Then Peterson made a decision he'd hoped he'd never have to. He pulled the trigger. The trailer filled with an impossibly loud bang. A silence descended, an eerie stillness after the hellish scraping and grunting that had filled the air moments earlier. The stranger's body slumped over and became motionless. Three sets of wide eyes looked at each other. Panic set in, settling down in Peterson's gut alongside feelings of shock and trauma. There was no way out between this rock and hard place, it seemed. His brothers both had criminal records, and whether Peterson went to the police or waited for them to discover the stranger's body in the trailer, he knew the young black man would be painted as murderers. Damned if he did, damned if he didn't. Unless the police never found out, he considered. Shaking and terrified, sitting next to the dead man contemplating his fate for an hour, Peterson then made the second unthinkable move that night. He walked to his mother's nearby trailer and retrieved her car, put the body in the trunk with his brother's assistance, stuffed the man's scattered clothes into a bag he would later discard, and drove to a quiet tree-lined street. Although Peterson had brought a shovel and planned to bury the body in the woods, the headlights of a passing car startled the 20-year-old, prompting him to leave the body on the side of a rural road with no means of identification. He hoped this nightmare would all go away. I didn't go out looking for trouble, Peterson recalls, in a recent phone call from Pulaski State Prison, where he is currently serving a 20-year sentence for involuntary manslaughter. He tells the advocate that he and his brothers often hung out at the convenience store just 50 yards outside the entrance to the trailer park they called home. And while Peterson carried a gun for protection, he never had to use it, until that average night turned into a living nightmare. So if you'd like to read more of that story, it's uh, on The Advocate, and it's also pasted, pasted. It's also posted on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And just another example of someone uh, defending themselves and then being sent to prison and the police not assisting and not protecting him. And that's a very common theme, extremely common. So this is going to go into the next story. Um, as Halloween's coming up, people tend to... Some people have fun, and some people have a lot of really offensive uh, costumes. And so Caitlyn Jenner had – there's a Caitlyn Jenner costume, which is just uh, – uh, I don't have words for it even. And this is a, a blog post about how problematic <laughs> that is. And this comes from Huffington Post, and the author of the article's name is uh, Delia Melody. And the title of the article is Trans Bodies Are Not a Halloween Costume. And there's a reason I read the previous article, and you'll, you'll see why. Um, getting into this just to really – uh, to drive the point home, and you know, it's it's kind of going back to the whole article about uh, folks with disabilities, and people are like, oh, PC police, uh, you know, why can't I be offensive and X Y Z, and it really goes beyond. It's not even a, a freedom of speech issue. It's a it's a freedom of having respect for other people issue, and especially when it comes down to Halloween, there's a plenty of costumes you can have. There's a whole variety. So why not choose something that's not going to be terribly offensive to someone, especially folks who are in, you know, marginalized communities? Okay, trans bodies are not a Halloween costume. The days are getting shorter. The smell of pumpkin spice lattes is heavy in the air. The leaves would be changing color if, if this wasn't Florida. And the shop windows are crawling with spooky delights. Yes, the signs are all here. Halloween is at hand. 
hands down. This is my favorite holiday of the year. Blame the nerd in me, I suppose, but I know I'm not the only one who loves the excuse to play dress-up in public without the weird stares at least once a year. It's fun to pretend to be someone or something else for a night, and costumes run a gamut as wide as the human imagination. With such a variety of fun, frightening, and even sexy ensembles to choose from, it's disappointing to see that the tired stereotypes and lazy hatred still manage to find a way to the store shelves. That's right, I'm talking about the Call Me Caitlin costume. Now, it probably feels like I'm a little bit late to the game on this one. People have been talking about how offensive and harmful it is for at least two months. But stay with me, because I'm not going to waste your valuable time with all this very valid points you've already heard. As a Halloween fanatic who spends months in advance perfecting my ensemble, my biggest beef with this costume is that it's entirely lazy and uninspired. It's boring, uninteresting, and completely trite. You might find transmisogyny, you might find your transmisogyny witty, but trust me, you're the only one, and you're far from doing anything new. Transphobic men have been using Halloween as an excuse to dress up as a tranny, their words, uh, since long before Caitlyn Jenner came along. As a trans woman of color, I don't get the joke. There's nothing funny about facing the realities of homelessness and employment discrimination and losing your family and friends, and so much more just to be who you are. There's nothing funny about being treated like some kind of dangerous sexual deviant on the basis of your gender. And there's absolutely nothing funny about the prospect of being murdered just for being born different. Maybe that's an idea, though. I get it. You want to dress as a trans woman, but we know that's not funny, so why not actually put in some effort and make it scary? This is Halloween, after all. You could dress as a trans murder victim. Believe me, any of us can tell you how frightening that is. This is the stuff our nightmares are made of, and with good reason. At least 23 transgender women have been murdered in the United States this year alone, and those are only the ones we know about. <coughs> of course, most people who aren't trans aren't even aware of that. Our deaths are invariably downplayed, ignored, erased, and justified. You might be lucky enough to catch one or two local articles with titles like Man Found Dead in a Dress when a much more accurate title would be transgender woman found dead with multiple gunshots to the face, usually including some statement from the police that any potential motive is beyond the scope of their imaginations and that the death is not being considered the result of a hate crime. But we know better because in every case we learn better. The signs are there plain as day. Our bodies have been found burned, mutilated beyond recognition, with knife and bullet wounds, run over multiple times, and even dismembered and boiled into a stew. What's even more horrifying is that the murderers are seldom held accountable for a hate crime, or any crime at all for that matter. Time and time again, in almost every case, we end up learning that the victim was murdered by a friend, family member, or romantic partner upon coming out to them as transgender. And in almost every case, the trans panic defense uses this as a reason to justify the crime and even coddle the murderer as though they were somehow the real victim. Lawyers assert that finding out a woman is transgender is somehow psych so psychologically disturbing that murdering her is the expected and normal response, and in every state but California, it is considered a legitimate defense. That's beyond frightening. It defies logic and sanity. Now, obviously, I would never seriously advocate that anyone actually dress as a trans murder victim for Halloween, and I'd certainly like to hope that everyone can see how offensive and hateful that would be. So... Why do we have such a hard time seeing it in the Caitlyn Jenner costume? 
Perhaps it's because it's the way transphobia has been institutionalized in our society and ingrained into our minds since childhood. All most people ever seem to know about us are myths and lies concocted to scare the public, when the reality is we are ordinary women and men. Yes, trans men do exist. That's an interesting thing to read on the show. Uh, just like anyone else. Our gender is just as real and valid as yours. It's not a kink or a choice. The only difference is our bodies. And while no one will ever be murdered for not being trans, our trans bodies will continue to make us targets, and those same trans bodies will continue to be used as an excuse for murder. Many Halloween costumes involve fake blood. Sadly, in this case, the blood is all too real. It's easy to say it's just a costume, and at the end of the night, you can take it off. But we can't take off our transness, and we will continue having to live with the consequences of the subtle, casual hatred your costume embodies. My hope is that with education, you'll learn to leave our bodies out of your Fright Night wardrobe selection. Because frankly, you're running out of blood. We're running out of blood for you to use. Oh, so, that says it all right there. And, all right. Gonna take another musical break and uh, back with some uh, more news. Telephone wire, run and run. Telephone wire, sun down on the creek. Partly frozen, partly flowing. Must be windy, trees are bending. Junction 50, field needs mowing. Feels like the car is floating. Say something, talk to Hey. Yeah. Where do you want to go? Oh, I don't know. I know a bar. It's kind of hidden away. CD club for folks like, you know, could be fun. But dad, I'm not 21. Yeah, right. Telephone wire, long black line. Telephone wire, finely threaded sky. There's the pond where I went waiting. There's a sign for Sugar Valley. On the mountain, light is fading. I go back to school tomorrow. Say something, talk to In college, my first year there, Norris Jones, he had black wavy hair. Norris Jones, where is he now? Fourteen years old, in Swenson's barn. It was cold. 
Lots of boys messed around, you know, for them it was a game they outgrew. But I always knew. Dad, me too, since like five, I guess. I prefer to wear boy shirts and pants. I felt absurd in a dress. I really tried to deny my feelings for girls. But I was like you, Dad, me too. Norris Jones. Dad. Norris Jones. Dad. Hey, did I mention that new project I've taken on? Oh, you've seen it out. That old house out on Route 150? Oh, it's been standing out there empty 40, 50 years at least. Telephone wire, stop too fast. Telephone wire, make this not the past. This car ride, this is where it has to happen. There must be some other chances. earlier than I thought. Are you coming in? Telephone wire. That was our last night. Wow, it's a hell of an upper of a show today, isn't it, everybody? I am all smiles here. That's a joke. Uh, but I do have some good news. There is good news. There is good news. Promise. So, uh, breaking, Shell just scrapped their tar sands project. This is great news for the Earth and for humans who actually care about the Earth. Some humans don't. Uh, I'm one of them who, who does. A lot of us do, actually. So, that's some good news. There's been a lot of pressure uh, against Shell to uh, stop the, the project. And... That's very wonderful. So just the brief, I'm going to read about this very uh, briefly. Uh, I mean, that's, there's, that's all there is, really. It's, uh, they canceled their 80,000-barrel-a-day uh, Carmen Creek off-sands s- off project in Alberta. That's all the info I have, but that's good. That's a good thing. There is some progress being made. Uh, humans are still killing each other, but maybe, I mean, it's great that humans are, st- are stop fucking with the earth for a little bit. <laughs> so I'll take it. There's always at least one happy story. That's my guarantee on the show. There'll be one positive story. And again, the the positive, I found like the positive stories on the show are just people preventing other people from doing harm. That's considered positive, but I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll absolutely take it. Uh, going into some more. Oh man, these are all so heavy and so ah sad. But that's what we got to do. So first of all, um, we all, a lot of us heard about there's a a cop who I don't know why there's a fucking cop in a school, but there are cops in schools. I mean, there's also cops, you know, arresting homeless folks and criminalization of the poor. That's also going on. Ugh. So there's a cop in the school in South Carolina who totally beat up a student, and there are folks who are victim blaming. And so this is from colorofchange.org. There's, uh, so he was thankful he was fired. However, there is motion to prosecute this dude. 
this cup. And uh, if you go to colorofchange.org, you can sign the petition. It says, prosecute fields, drop the charges against the students. Because uh, a student was, was taping this, and uh, then that student was disciplined, which is ridiculous. Uh, there should be no, it's like with whistleblowing, there should be, it's not a crime to, uh, to show when someone is causing someone else harm. Uh, after 90,000 Color of Change members raised their voices, Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott fired Officer Ben Fields, but he's not facing any criminal charges. As of right now, the only people facing charges are the young students Fields brutalized. It's fucked up. It's inexcusable. Fields, who has a long history of violence targeting black students and Richland residents, should never be a police officer again, but he must be charged with a crime in order to lose his license. The bottom line, Fields should never have been called in the first place. Color of Change members know all too well that the police violence caught on camera at Spring Valley High is part of a much larger crisis of criminalization targeting black students. In the past few years, the number of police in schools has skyrocketed and the result has been devastating. Known as the school to prison pipeline, kids are now much more likely to be suspended, expelled, and arrested for the type of issues that years ago would have landed a student in the principal's office. Black girls who face dehumanizing racist and gender stereotypes are six times more likely than white girls to be suspended, most commonly for subjective issues such as having a bad attitude. Police should play no role in the everyday education and disciplining of students. Join us in urging Richland County Solicitor Dan Johnson to drop the charges against all students and charge Officer Fields with assault. And so you can find this um, this petition at colorofchange.org. I'm gonna go. This is gonna go into the next article, which is more of a history. And I talk about this on the show all the time, and a lot of folks are talking about this, but we need to talk about it even more. And this is from the Concourse, and the title of the article is "There Are No Innocent Black People," uh, written by Greg Howard. And this talks about victim blaming and how there's so much victim blaming in this culture and in this country. And when something happens to someone, how it's it's ridiculous that we people automatically some people I should say automatically defend the people committing the violence uh, as, as if the person who is on the receiving end of it somehow deserved it, which is ridiculous. Okay. Um, Monday afternoon, video emerged of a white man approaching a small black girl sitting in a classroom, uh, noosing a thick arm around her neck, slamming her to the ground while she was still entangled in her desk, picking her up again, throwing her some distance across the room, and then again pinning her down. Put your hands behind your back, he said. Give me the hands. Give me the hands. Give me the hands. The video of the attack was as horrific as it was sickening. An adult was attacking a child. A man was ragdolling a little girl. Soon, further context began to trickle in. The beatdown, which is what it was, took place in Columbia, South Carolina's Spring Valley High School. The man was a police officer identified as Ben Fields, a senior deputy in the Richland County Sheriff's Department, assigned to a Spring Valley, assigned to Spring Valley as a school resource officer. He also was a coach on the school's football team. The girl was a student. Video of the attack made the evening news as a story or as on CNN fodder for debate. Anchor Wolf Blitzer asked a panel if there was an excuse for the officer to slam the girl. Tom Fuentes, former assistant FBI director, said there was no excuse for slamming. <coughs> but then explained that if the girl didn't comply with the cop, the cop would have to get physical. And when the cop gets physical, it's not going to go well. Blitzer then posited the question to CNN host Don Lemon, who blustered and qualmed before arriving at his point. 
This only shows a small slice of time of what happened. I'd like to know more before passing judgment. Finally, CNN legal analyst Sunny Hostin cut in. Are you guys kidding me? She asked. No, we're not kidding, Lemon answered. We don't know what happened. You weren't sitting in the room, Sunny. You don't know if she wasn't uh, standing up. As Lemon and Hostin sparred back and forth, it became apparent what was going on. A violent crime had been caught on tape, and all Lemon and Fuentes could do was assume that the habits of deference and look for a reason to blame a child for being attacked rather than the police officer who slammed her to the ground, threw her, th threw her through the air, and arrested a second student, Nia Kenny, when she tried to step in. Yesterday, RCSD Sheriff Leon Lott addressed media and provided that reason. If she had not disrupted the school, he said, disrupted the class, we would not be standing here today. He continued, saying that while the girl's behavior didn't justify Fields' violence, that he had been pla placed on leave, and there was another video angle that showed the student hitting the school resources officer with her fists. It was a detail every bit as convenient as it is feeble. First, it's not clear that the narrative is credible. As to the disruption, the student named Aaron Johnson told a, a student named Aaron Johnson told Gawker's Jordan Sargent on Monday that Fields was summoned once the girl ignored orders from both a teacher and an administrator to go to the discipline office. Yesterday, uh, uh, yesterday, a classmate who recorded the encounter named Tony Robinson also talked to reporters, laying out the offense. She really hadn't done anything wrong, he said. She said that she had took her phone out, but it was only for a quick second. As to the hitting, Fields engaged her fist, her, her first, uh, oh, as, as to the hitting, Fields engaged her first and violently. More important is the question of proportion. Fields is dubbed the Incredible Hulk at Spring Valley High because of his ability to bench 600 pounds. He's also a trained police officer who is dealing with an unarmed student who posed no threat. A cop working in a school should have tools available to them for dealing with children that fall somewhere on the spectrum between not, uh, between not doing anything and proceeding as if it were an active shooter situation. In Lemons and Fuentes' search for a reason why the officer would attack a child and in Lot's provision of one, they were, like many, speaking around the attack itself, and in doing so, losing sight of the vital detail. The bottom line, Don Huston, Huston said, is, this is a young girl. Black people on American shores have always been seen as innately criminal. This assumption of criminality traces back beyond before the very birth of this country. Even after Americans won their independence in the Revolutionary War, blacks who tried to escape from or fight their way out of enslavement were seen as thieves stealing their own bodies from someone else. The assumption of black criminality bears out in a variety of ways. Blacks only make up about 13% of the American population, but account for nearly half the country's prison population. Blacks are six times more likely to be incarcerated than whites, and they are sentenced to for larger periods and put to death at much higher rates than whites who commit the same crimes. The penal system aspires to be a state-sponsored reform program, but prison doesn't exist in its current form as an attempt to rehabilitate black people so much as to remove them from society altogether. Things like learning how to read, uh, uh, pissing in the 
pissing in the wrong trough and not stepping off the sidewalk when whites pass have all at various times been seen as acts of defiance meant to subvert this country's caste system, the ghosts of which still infect our legal process today. Any misstep a black person makes can be used not just to affirm their innate criminality, but as, tool, but as a tool with which to remove that person from society, crippling their future as well as those of their family and their community. University of Virginia student uh, Mart Martise Johnson misstepped earlier this year when he tried to enter a bar while underaged. He was, he was beaten bloody. 12-year-old Tamir Rice misstepped last year in Cleveland, Ohio when he was playing with a toy gun in a park. He was executed at close range. John Crawford III misstepped in Beaver Creek, Ohio when he picked up an air rifle off a shelf in Walmart. He too was executed at close range. Jonathan Farrell misstepped in Charlotte, North Carolina two years ago when he banged on doors for help after a car accident. He was shot 10 times. Less than two months later, Renisha McBride misstepped in Detroit, Michigan when she got in a car accident of her own and um, uh, when she got into a she got in a car accident of her own and also sought assistance. She was shot in the back of the head. From an early age, blacks learn their lives can be taken casually, almost accidentally, and learn to focus on what they can control. Blacks are taught humility in the home, always with words and often with whips. And in the black Christian church, black humility is often conflated with the Christian kind, but the two couldn't be any further apart. Christian humility is affirmative, rooted in equality, and the idea that God loves whores and kings all the same. Black humility is born of pragmatism, of self-preservation in the face of mechanized brutality. To be black and humble is to be outwardly subservient, to tiptoe around the authority of a teacher or a cop or a neighborhood watchman or just a white person ambling past. When blacks choose defiance, no matter how small, over humility, they are proving their black criminality bad things happen. Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Jordan Davis and Freddie Gray and Walter Scott are all recently defiant to authority and in their own ways and they were all killed. Compare their fates to that of James Egan Holmes, the heavily armed gunman who was taken alive, tried and convicted and sentenced after walking into an Aurora, Colorado movie theater in 2012 and shooting into the crowd, killing 12 and injuring 70 more. Or compare their fates to that of Dylan Roof, who walked into a Charleston, South Carolina church earlier this year and killed nine churchgoers. Officers arrested him, threw him in the back of their car, and then bought him Burger King. Given that blacks are presumed criminal from birth, it makes sense that even in school, punishment is distributed unequally. Black children are just 18% of preschoolers, but make up 48% of preschoolers who receive more than one out of school suspension. Black students of all ages are suspended at over three times the rate of, as white students. Black girls are suspended six times more than white girls. Black kids account for 16% of all students, but as many are expelled as white kids, who account for over half. In too many schools, all youthful defiance talking in class or not wearing the proper uniforms or refusing to engage or, uh, or by God, fisticuffs is taken as an illegitimate affront to, uh, to or subversion of authority. The difference for black kids is that their defiances and even their mistakes are less often taken as one-offs or obvious bumps on the road to adulthood and more often read as dangerous markers of intent. More black children are punished more often for, for transgressions like those of children of other races make 
and authorities are more liable to, to look at them and decide to remove them from school altogether, all but crippling their futures. The situation becomes worse when police officers are injected into schools, SROs, uh, are injected into schools. SROs were originally introduced into schools uh, to, in, to contend with rising crime, and their presence has exploded over the last two decades in the wake of mass shootings like Columbine. Cops in schools raise the stakes because with them around, routine, non-criminal offenses subject students to arrest. When students owe subservience as the price of not being assaulted, schools become prisons. On Monday in Columbia, a girl peeked at her phone and then refused to leave class and then was thrown around a classroom. Since the video has become news, more details surrounding the attack have been unearthed. Fields, it turns out, is also nicknamed Officer Slam because of his reputation of using aggressive force in the past. He's been previously accused of racial targeting. There have likely been other cases like Mondays at, at, like Mondays at Spring Valley High School. This is just the first one to reach the public. Fields was fired today, and the FBI and U.S. Department of Justice announced they're conducting civil rights investigations to see whether a federal law was violated. A case will be built against him. He'll have his day in court, and it will be determined whether he was found guilty of any wrongdoing. It's all very fair and very American. Fields will be considered innocent until proven otherwise. Oh. All right, so. <sighs> Taking a break, some more music, and then we'll be back with uh, some, some more stories.
and we're black. Uh, we're back. Haven't played any uh, rock music yet on the show yet today, so thought it was time. It's a band called My Vitriol. Found out about them a long time ago, back in the year 2000. A song called Always Your Way. And okay. yeah, it's been a heavy show. We'll be back next week. We'll have some guests on the show. Looking forward to that. Uh, it's also election day. I recognize some folks don't believe in voting. Totally get it. However, if you feel like voting, if you are, please, we encourage you to vote here in San Francisco. Uh, vote 123, uh, Amy Farrah Weiss, Francisco Herrera, Stuart Shuffman. Uh, you can vote for all three of them for mayor. We need to get Ed Lee out of office. Also, we want to vote yes on F and I and J and K and Prop A and uh, D. So those are the ones to vote yes on. Uh, so, coming up, got another story here about uh, people being killed. That's what the show is about, pretty much. And uh, what happens when our tax money goes to aiding the military to, to kill civilians? That's the world we live in. You know, I don't know why I thought the show... I mean, I, I love doing the show, and I, I missed it, certainly. I really just forgot how depressing it is. I really did. Uh, so, you know, let's you live and you learn. But feel there's there's the need to because imagine if there was always uh, if there's always folks actually calling people out on their shit if that had always been the case and I'm sure there have been and, the, and some folks don't believe in free speech necessarily or people calling out those in, in positions of power but uh, if we prevented people from doing the, these heinous things then we wouldn't have to talk about them mm, think about that so this comes from the Intercept which is one reliable I feel reliable uh, place to find news. And uh, American drone assassinations may violate international law, experts say. Now, there was an article out recently that uh, 90% of folks killed by drones are civilians. 90%. So this will, I'm sure, follow up that. And this was written by uh, Murtaza Hussein. This, again, is from The Intercept. You can also find it on the Weekly Review uh, page. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. The standards governing Americans, America's drone assassinations may violate the Geneva Conventions and other international norms, legal experts say. U.S. forces routinely classify bystanders felled in its Afghanistan drone strikes as enemies killed in action, even when they are not the intended targets of the strikes, according to a source and to documents obtained by The Intercept published earlier this month. But the Geneva Conventions specify that when someone's status is not clear, they should be classified as a civilian. Article 50 of Additional Protocol 1, Additional Protocol I, uh, which states back to 1977 and was ratified by 174 countries, says that in case of doubt whether a person is a civilian, that person shall be considered to be a civilian. A landmark document from the International Committee of the Red Cross in 2009 expands on this rule. All feasible precautions must be taken in determining whether a person is a civilian and, if so, whether that civilian is directly participating in hostilities. In case of doubt, that person must be presumed to be protected against direct attack. In case of doubt as to whether a specific civilian conduct qualifies as direct participation in hostilities, it must be presumed that the general rule of civilian protection applies. The U.S. failed to ratify Protocol I uh, after signing it, and the Red Cross's legal guidance has been controversial, at least within elements of the U.S. defense establishment. 
But until now, it's been unclear to what extent the U.S. would depart from treaties and other influential documents related to classifying casualties whose civilian status is unclear. The ICRC teaches the presumption of civilian status in cases of doubt, and its teaching is consistent with the purpose of international humanitarian law, which is to protect civilians from attack unless they are taking a direct part in hostilities, says Hina Shamsi of the ACLU's National Security Project. What the U.S. is essentially presuming is that the people it has killed were taking a direct part in hostilities. In other words, in assessing the lawfulness uh, of its lethal force, it's turning the exception into the rule. The United States Special Operations Command has previously declined to comment on the intercept's revelations about its drone strikes in Afghanistan. This controversial U.S. posture toward possible civilians is not confined to its drone wars or to the documents obtained by the intercept. It's also explicitly outlined in a landmark Law of War manual issued by the Department of Defense in June. The manual, the first ever such department-wide manual in the DOD's history and the culmination of years of legal uh, deliberation by military and civilian lawyers, directly addresses additional protocol I, but argues... that customary international law does not require classifying people as civilians by default. A legal presumption of civilian status in cases of doubt may demand a degree of certainty that would not account for the, real, for, for the realities of war, the document states. It also claims that under customary international law, uh, no legal presumption of civilian status exists for person or, persons or objects. While the, department, while the Defense Department claims that a pr- presumption of civilian status is not part of the customary international law, at least one member of the defense establishment has said the opposite. Michael Schmidt, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and 20-year veteran of the Air Force, endorsed the presumption of civilian status as a, part, as a key part of customary international law. In the course of arguing against strict Red Cross legal guidance on which members of a hostile group may be attacked in combat. As he wrote in his article in the Harvard National Security Journal, international humanitarian law already accounts for situations of doubt as to whether an individual is a civilian. Article 50.1 of Additional Protocol I, a provision generally deemed reflective of customary international law, provides that in case of doubt whether a person is a civilian, that person shall be considered to be a civilian. The DOD manual doesn't only reject a presumption of civilian status, it also discusses when it is appropriate to direct attacks against what it, what it refers to as civilians. Attacks, however, may not be directed against civilians or civilian objects based on merely hypothetical or speculative considerations regarding their possible current status as a military objective. In assessing whether a person or object that normally does not have any military purpose or use is a military objective, uh, commanders and... Other decision-makers must make the decision in good faith based on the information available to them in light of the circumstances ruling at the the time. Legal experts interviewed for this article criticized U.S. drone war leaders not only for misclassifying civilians as combatants, but also for seeming to abandon the idea that people... uh, to abandon the idea that people the U.S. military attacks on on foreign soil must pose an imminent threat. Under international law, initiating the, f- the use of force in another country uh, is legitimate only within a narrow range of circumstances, one of which is a need to quickly defend against an imminent threat. 
The Obama administration nodded at this norm when it outlined standards stipulating that in counterterrorism operations, it will use legal force only against a target that poses a continuing imminent threat to U.S. persons. The Bush administration also embraced this concept, stating in a 2002 national security strategy document that, for centuries, international law recognized that nations can lawfully take action to defend themselves against forces that present an imminent danger of attack. The Bush administration then stretched the definition of imminent danger to include Iraqi dictator Haram, Saddam Hussein, but at least it tried to justify war using the framework of imminent threat. In international law, imminent means what non-lawyers would assume it means, immediate, about to happen, says Sarah Nucky in uh, an international lawyer and professor at Columbia Law School. But the U.S. government uh, interpretation of imminent expands traditional legal interpretations and expands the scope of who can be killed and when. Even these criteria for de defining imminence are omitted in a 2013 Pentagon study made public this month by The Intercept, which evaluates certain aspects of the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, killing campaign in Yemen and Somalia in 2011 and 2012. Instead, the only criterion mentioned uh, in the study to justify targeting a person for lethal operations is an OPAC reference uh, stating that they must present a threat to U.S. interest or personnel. A National Security Council spokesperson contacted previously by The Intercept would not explain why the Pentagon studies rules for drone assassinations differed from those outlined by the White House the same month, but the spokesperson said that the White House rules are in effect today. And they also have a link to the complete drone papers. So you can find this full article here up at The Intercept, and I encourage folks to do so. Uh, let's educate ourselves. Oh, so that I think it's about time to wrap up the show. It's been pretty fucking depressing. Uh, I, again, I am, I wasn't, I don't know why I wasn't expecting it. I remember it, it's being uh, difficult and heavy and it is, it feels difficult and heavy to read it, but the very least one can do if one has the opportunity and the privilege to read the atrocities that are occurring around the world is to at least report on them. And to at least make folks aware and so we can prevent them from happening in the future and to stop them from happening in the first place. So, ugh, so there's that. Um, shug, shug, uh, I am, oof, I am really, oof. All right, show plugs, upcoming shows. Uh, I'll be co-hosting the LGBT Improv Jam that's coming up this next Wednesday, the day after election day. Yeah, election day, you can vote at City Hall. Uh, you can, uh, you don't have to have a permanent address. You can on, uh, you can go to City Hall to vote. Uh, again, please vote one, two, three to replace Mayor Ed Lee. Vote yes on A and uh, F and uh, I and J and K and D. Um, oh, wow. Yes. So please vote. Uh, November 5th is Guy Fox Day. If you want to celebrate that in any way possible, to go for it. Do it. Um, so yeah, co-hosting the LGBT Improv Jam. It's a free show. It's at Stageworks on Valencia between 15th and 16th. Check that out. Uh, I know there's more things to to talk about. I'm kind of feeling pretty drained. It's only it's only coming up on 2 p.m. and I'm already pretty drained for the day. So thanks for so much for listening. And uh, I'm gonna be playing a song that uh, heard performed uh, by Jose Gonzalez, and it's super sad and beautiful. And uh, uh, there there's a line in it. Uh, there is a truth, and it's on our side. And I think about that all the time, and how beautiful that is. And even if uh, one feels powerless uh, living in the world that we do that's so fraught with violence and prejudice. Uh, just to remember, there is a truth, and it's on our side. So thanks all for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, feel free to... I'm not on Twitter that much, but you can contact me on Twitter at Roman Reimer. 
or like our Facebook page. I think Facebook is evil, but you know that's where we're at for now. Uh, good news, we'll be on iTunes very shortly, uh, within a couple weeks. Very excited about that, so you'll be able to download. You can still download previous uh, episodes as well as other shows here on Mutiny Radio. Go to mutinyradio.fm. We got the archives up, and soon you'll be able to hear us in iTunes, which will be great. So closing up the show, here's a song by Jose Gonzalez uh, called Stay Alive. Um, uh, it's just so, so beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, Sending out some love to, to everyone out there for listening, and uh, please be kind to yourself and to one another, and offer to help one another if you're able. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. So have a, have a good week. a rhythm and wash these tastes Where the lights don't move and the colors don't fade Leaves you empty with nothing but dreams In a world gone shallow and a world gone mean Sometimes there's things a man cannot know Won't turn and the leaves won't grow. There's no place to run and no gasoline. Engine won't turn and the train won't leave. Engines won't turn and the train won't leave. I will stay.
about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby! There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Join us every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. for Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse here on Mutiny Radio. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin, bringing you the best of San Francisco's underground comedy scene here every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. It's only $2. You can bring your own beer and listen to comedy here every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m., 21st in Florida. It's mutinyradio.fm. The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in, turn on, every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m., House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner and Pearl T. Are you sick of reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? 
If so, then the Weekly Review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. Listen in, Fridays at noon, Mutiny Radio. Roman's also joined by activists, community organizers, artists, and many other great folks working to make the world a better place. Have no fear. The news is here. And if you feel like yelling about it, well then Roman will be yelling with you. The Weekly Review, Fridays at noon, on Mutiny Radio. Hello, comrades. This is your comrade, Zach Wiseman, host of government-sponsored program, Communist Folding Chairs, mandated by the Kremlin to occur every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m., broadcast by our comrades at mutinyradio.fm. Sit, relax, listen to my comrades in stand-up comedy march honorably through their cold balance sets, and other comrades make fun of them. Because in Mother Russia, if you can't laugh about starving for turnip and beet, and attention, you are a capitalist pig, and the KB- KGB will visit you shortly. Every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Miren, miren! Es un pájaro? Es un avión? No! It's a man! Looking to invest in the future of your community? MutinyRadio.fm and the Boys and Girls Club Mission Clubhouse needs your help. Please donate to keep the Radio Classroom Institute right now alive on the air every Thursday from 4.50 to 5.50 p.m. Donations are tax deductible. Donate online at www.mutinyradio.fm or just stop by the station at 21st Street and Florida. That's 2781 21st Street and throw some cash in the big glass jar. Stop by to experience live audience-friendly shows every day of the week and know that you're supporting the future of the mission by keeping free speech alive for all ages. This PSA is brought to you by your friends and community partners at muniradio.fm. Hi, I'm Chuck Weiss. If you're an old baby boomer like me, pain is probably something you've learned to live with by now. Yes, there are drugs on the market that help, but they come with side effects and shouldn't be used for extended periods of time. But fortunately, there is an effective natural pain reliever available in this state, medical cannabis. Let me tell you about Alta California Botanicals. They're a manufacturer of fine cannabis tinctures. Now you can take your medication in liquid form, much more discreet than pulling out a pipe and lighting up. Alta California Botanicals offers five different formulations, each one addressing a specific medical concern. There are two that are designed for pain, one to be swallowed, of course, and a new one for external use only. I'm going to have to try that one myself on my arthritic fingers. There's a tincture for stress and one for anxiety. They'll certainly keep you mellow. And there's even one for people who suffer from MS. The cannabis tinctures from Alta California Botanicals come in one half ounce bottles. Each batch is laboratory tested and certified free of pesticides and mold. In other words, completely natural and unadulterated. Alta California Botanicals doesn't sell directly to the public, of course, 
But if you visit their website at Alta, A-L-T-A, CaliforniaBotanicals.com and enter your zip code, they'll give you a list of dispensaries near you that keep their tinctures in stock. Now here's a tip for the holiday season. Keep a couple of extra bottles of the stress formula handy. It'll help maintain your cool amongst all that shopping madness. I'm Chuck Weiss for AltaCaliforniaBotanicals.com. Do you have a great idea for a product or service but don't know where to start? Are you looking to expand your current business? Women's Initiative of San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988. To attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business, or for more information, please contact 415-641-3460 or visit womensinitiative.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Planned Parenthood is a trusted healthcare provider, an informed educator, a passionate advocate, and a global partner helping similar organizations around the world. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive health care, sex education, and information to millions of women, men, and young people worldwide. For nearly 100 years, Planned Parenthood has promoted a common-sense approach to women's health and well-being based on respect for each individual's rights to make informed, independent decisions about health, sex, and family planning. Please visit PlannedParenthood.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The Berkeley Free Clinic was founded in 1969 as a street medicine clinic, but quickly found a permanent home in the Berkeley community. It has become an icon in the area and has served countless thousands in a variety of ways during its 45-year history. Fees have never been charged for any services, materials, medications, or supplies provided at the Berkeley Free Clinic. Income has been generated solely via individual or organizational donations and government programs. To volunteer your time or to make a donation or for more information, visit berkeleyfreeclinic.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. 